Welcome to the Kook Center Podcast, and here's your host. That's where Oregon has to get to stay alive on this play. Rocky hit from behind. Throws in desperation, and Washington State has come to Eugene and shot the Ducks. Michael Preston. That turned out pretty well, didn't it? <laughs> Better than I thought it was going to towards the end of that game. Welcome to the Coog Center Hour. Ooh, what a good Saturday. I had take I had, had an energy drink. I was at work. I wanted to get to work early so I could get some work done and then watch a little bit of the game, you know, more, dedicate a little more eyeball to the game. And uh, I had had an energy drink that day already and like no water and so you know my heart your heart's beating quick enough as it is uh and then that just made it worse including that that last drive because i thought when oregon got up by you know multiple touchdowns the, the game was over multiple scores i thought the game was over and then mark helford tried to ice it with seven minutes left and that just was a very terrible idea on his part Jacob Thorpe coming up here in about 15 minutes, maybe a little less than that. We'll see how long we ramble on for here on the Kook Center Hour. And then Brian Anderson is going to come on. We're going to talk a little bit more about the football team and about Luke Falk uh, specifically because those numbers he's put up this year, 18 touchdowns, two interceptions, fantastic. We are going to talk about some things he can improve on. There's always, And this is not a, I think Luke Falk's a bad quarterback. I don't want him up there. He's obviously a very, very good quarterback. There's just things we'd like to see him do a little bit more of. But let's go back to that football game on Saturday, why don't we? Because it's always re nice or always re nice. Always nice to relive things that uh that you really enjoyed, isn't it? It's always nice to relive those things that you really and truly enjoyed. I I, I mean, I what do you what do you even you know it's what do you even say about it? I mean, I it, it's it's incredible what happened in that game. When you're down by 10, you go down by 10 with 8.20 to go. You're down multiple scores now. Eric Powell kicks a field goal with under four minutes left to go. And you are within a touchdown. But even then, it felt like it just wasn't going to happen. And we've seen in the past that... You know, you, you have a reason to feel that way. That it's not going to happen. And then on the final drive of the game, when Luke Falk is called down when he's not down, when they don't call that blatant face mask in front of him, you just feel like everything's building up against you. That long third down conversion even, that fourth down conversion, the long one to Marks. Even after all of that, it, it felt like, you know, it wasn't going to happen. And you you were going to get... One shot, probably. One shot at the end zone. And they did it. And I was screaming for them to go for two. I just, I had no, I, I did not think that you wanted to see the Oregon Ducks in overtime. And they didn't. Mike Leach said the assistant who was yelling at him was, was just kind of like Richard Nixon waving the peace sign. He wasn't even thinking about it. Though he got that really, you know, that look on his face, that glazed over look like he's contemplating life on his face. WSU in overtime, tied it through the first one, got that ridiculous like pop pass out of Craycraft's belly 
into Robert Lewis. And for the record, Craig Kraft was in anyway. And then WSU's defense did what they did a lot that day. They stepped up. Because Oregon, if I'm remembering right, only converted like five of their, I think five of their 16 third downs. Something like that. Let's look at this. I can't see it on the stat sheet here in front of me, but I I remember it being about like that, right? Both teams, WSU about 100 extra yards on the total yards. Both teams turned it over the same amount of times. Keith Harrington, let's talk about Keith. Those two fumbles, he's going to get right back up from that, and he did. I mean, his teammates are going to pick him up, and that that kid's way too special to be to have his head down. Yeah, U of O, 5 of 16 on third down. WSU was only 6 and 19, but they were 4 of 5 on fourth down. Running backs average over 9 yards a carry when you take out Luke Falk's sack yardage. WSU generated turnovers. They bent and they didn't break. And the offense was just brutally efficient at times. Really good. And I said it before at that Rutgers game. We'll say it again now. That win had stones. Bigger ones than that Rutgers game did. Because you go down to Autzen Stadium where you've had so much trouble since that walloping you put on Oregon over 10 years ago. You go down there, and I don't care if Oregon isn't as good as they were last year. They're certainly nowhere near as good as they were last year. But you exercise the demon. You have exercised the demon. You got rid of it. Oregon was that big pie, not a pie in the sky, but that that big thing at the top. You always looking up at them in the Pac-12 North standings, in the Pac-10 standings the last decade. You're always looking up there. And outside of that win in Pullman, You've had some okay success against them, and at times the games have been very close, but at other times Oregon's just shellacked you. That was an important win. There's no one else in this division that you needed a win over more than Oregon. No one for your psyche. No one for your state of mind if you're a WSU football player or even a WSU fan that you needed more than a win over Oregon. You needed that to happen. And for it to happen in the fashion that it happened, down 10 with eight and a half minutes to go on the road, you come back, tie the ball game, and then win it in overtime. That win had stones. Big brass stones. I know stones can't be a medal, but... Well, I can't. I don't remember too much geology with Kurt Wilkie, but... That was an important win. I had given up. I can admit that. And I think a lot of other people did too. A lot of people who won't admit that they did. But they stayed together. And they went out there. And they won the ball game. And they did it. In a way we expect them to. A lot of passing. And that that those running backs looked like they should in the air raid offense. Picking up all of those yards. Against a pretty decent Oregon front seven. A lot of seniority on that front seven. 
Luke Falk threw for over 500 yards, didn't throw a pick. Just those two Keith Harrington fumbles, and they came at bad times. Especially that last one. Boy, really thought the game was over after that one. But WSU persevered and got that win. It had stones. And I said this last week. They had a, had a chance. I said this last week. You have a chance to go 3-2 and two in the weirdest way possible. And we'll talk about this with Jacob Thorpe coming up. Who if You could have told me that this team would be 3-2 and two at this point, and I would have said, yeah, okay, they might be. And that would have included losses to Cal and Oregon. Or Rutgers and Oregon. Or Cal, or yeah, or Rutgers and Oregon, or Cal and Oregon. Not to Portland State and Cal. I... <laughs> This is a weird 3-2. and two. This is very, very weird. But that win in Eugene felt so, so good. I think your best single game win, just in, you know, if you're just looking at that game, your best win since you beat USC in 2013 and ran Lane Kiffin off. Or you at least threw him in the Tower of London before ASU put him on the chopping block the next week. You just look at just the one game. That was the best win since then. Now comes the important part. Can you follow up on it? Can you follow that up against an Oregon State team that is not very good at all? An Oregon State team that has some talent at receiver, that has some talent at running back, that has some defensive talent, but their quarterback, excuse me, their quarterback situation is just, I mean, Seth Collins was not even the top three choice after the after last season. They are not a very good football team, and the situation you're in right now is so eerily similar to the one you saw in 2011, isn't it? Home game in the middle of October against Oregon State. A game you're expected to win with a coach who may or may not kind of be on the hot seat. Now, granted, Paul Wolf's contract and the state of that team the years previous to that, Paul Wolf didn't have the bowl game to fall back on like Mike Leach does. But after last season, I think a lot of the goodwill built up from that is gone. And Mike Leach's contract is obviously prohibitive to getting rid of him just cost wise but that situation is eerily similar and WSU needs to put a complete game together you need to come out there on Saturday against Oregon State and you really need to beat them by at least a couple touchdowns it needs to be convincing you really need to go out there and convince people that that game in Eugene was not an accident because like we'll talk about with Jacob here in a couple of minutes they had another game like that last year. You guys remember, in it, arguably a better comeback in Salt Lake City in the driving rain, they came back from a larger deficit in that game. They were down 21 to nothing in the first quarter. And they came back and beat Utah, and you thought that was a turn-the-corner game. And then they went and lost all but one game the rest of the way. The win against Oregon is nice. It's great. We all feel wonderful, and I will continue to feel wonderful about it all week. 
all week until Saturday morning. But now you have to follow up on it. Now you have to put together a game against a team you really should take care of easily. That your quarterback shouldn't have any problem throwing against. That your running back should have some okay success running against. That your defense should be good at stopping. Should be well equipped to stop. You need to go put a game together against them. I don't think there's any doubt there is more talent on this team than the 2011 squad. I don't think there's any doubt that the expectation that they win this game is a little higher than that game. But to me, the parallels are there. Same year for the coach. Same basic part of the season. And you're expected to go out and beat the Oregon State Beavers. That is expected of you right now. That is expected of this team. They need to go out and do it. Because that win against Oregon is nice, but it you don't want to let it be like the Utah game last year, where just in a vacuum, that's all it is. A nice win. Because it doesn't mean anything if you go out and finish the year 4-8. and eight. It doesn't mean squat, or at least close to squat. If you can't turn that corner, if that game doesn't help you turn that corner to where you're now playing with teams you should really play with, and even against the really good teams like Stanford coming up on Halloween, yeah, they may beat you, but you're going to hang around with them. You're not going to roll over and die against the really good teams. You're not going to get these unexpected beatdowns coming. Because the last time Oregon State was here in 2013, nobody expected the game to go how it did. WSU got walloped. This is a football team you should beat, and you need to build on it. You need to get to 4-2, and two because at 4-2, and two, halfway through the season with six games left, a bowl game is a possibility again. 3-3, three and three, your job is really hard. 4-2, and two, things are a lot easier, and I know that's just basic math, but I'm repeating it. That game last weekend had stones. Take it and build on it this weekend and go out and beat Oregon State. You have to do that to continue the good momentum of the season, to build on that, to show that you really are improving. To show that you're getting better. To show what the coaches and the players keep saying, that this team is getting better. Now go out and prove it to me. Go out and prove it to everyone. Because if you can't, that Oregon win was great. But it doesn't mean a whole lot. Does it? Jacob Thorpe's coming up next here on the Kook Center Hour. And, uh, oh, by the way, apparently the all-crimson jerseys are the I I don't know how it happened. It's a wonderful thing. They didn't completely crap the bed with them or lose in a horrific way. It's wonderful. <laughs> Jacob Thorpe coming up next here on the Group Center Hour.
Back here on the Kook Center Hour, and we uh, visit in with a friend of the program who uh, I'm sure had a good weekend in Eugene, Mr. Jacob Thorpe of the Spokesman Review, who covers Washington State Athletics for the paper, specifically the football team right now. And uh, Jacob, that locker room after the game, I know you guys aren't exactly allowed in, but the attitude of everybody coming out of the locker room to talk to the press afterwards probably had to be the best in your time covering the team which stretches back uh, quite some time so uh, but everybody had to be in about as good a mood uh, as you've seen them well you know it's a blessing and a curse because uh, you know I don't know if you watch the post game videos but you know yes everyone's everyone's really exuberant and happy and everyone's wants to talk about the game and you know the, the players are really in a, in a good mood they, they want to rehash it but the locker rooms are right next to where we do the post-game interviews, and there's so much, uh, you know, chanting and celebrating going on five feet away. You you can't really hear anything. You know? <laughs> I hope no one noticed that it was the uh, most quote devoid gamer I think I've ever written, just because you know you're you're going through your audio and going, well, I'm not comfortable trying to guess what those ten words were, so I guess we're not going to get that answer in the paper. Yeah. Yeah, that is kind of the, that is kind of the problem with those digital recorders is they tend to pick up everything because they're omnidirectional and no, nothing really uh, is not caught by them. So that uh, that a small problem I think on your guys' part. But I, you know, this win I think again just in your tenure with the spokesman and I think in the last couple of years I had this discussion with a few folks. Uh, not only is it probably the best win the teams had in the last two years, even including at Salt Lake City last year it probably trumps that upset of USC in 2013. you agree or disagree with that? Well, I think it certainly feels that way, but it, it all comes down to whether or not they can build on it. Right. It? You know, there, there have been other wins. You talk about the one against Utah. That certainly, you know, had the vibe of uh, now they've figured it out, now they know how to do it, they, they, they won a big one on the road. Is that going to, you know, lead to greater things? And, and, it, and it didn't. And in, in terms of wins that actually had a bigger effect on the program i think what you know one could kind of argue that that complete game they played against uh, arizona two years back mm-hmm. that made a bowl seem pretty possible and then the uh, the one against utah to clinch it you know that seemed pretty possible but in terms of the team looking like it could go toe to toe against a, a good program that it finally had the horses to compete that you know that it finally was able to uh, simply line up talent-wise against a, a team like an Oregon and, and, and then go and get the job done with, uh, you know, a favorable schedule uh, looking like it's coming in the rest of the season. This is certainly the first time that sort of happened. It's the first time where something, uh, you know, they had a really big win and it looked like they could do a lot with it. Mm-hmm. Luke Falk had another uh, really phenomenal day, his most phenomenal day uh, so far this year, just over 500 yards of passing on 74 attempts, threw five touchdowns, rushed for another one. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the season, we had heard talk, is it going to be Falk or Bender? I think we always kind of knew, Jacob, that Mike Leach and his staff were leaning towards Luke Falk, but that's pretty darn well cemented for the rest of the year now, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's any question about that. And I think we did kind of see the the perfect Luke Falk game on Saturday. We saw that this is the type of game where he's very, very, very productive, even without necessarily spraying it downfield and taking a lot of shots. And, you know, Luke does have those games where he's all of a sudden he's completed 75% of the passes, and there were a couple deep ones, and there were a few nice touch touchdown passes. And without a couple drops, his numbers are looking 
even better. Although, although I guess not, because without those drops, they don't go to overtime. He doesn't right. get two more touchdowns. But, uh, you know, he, he certainly has the ability to be every bit as effective as some of those slingers. I don't think we're going to see him throw downfield a whole lot more than he has been lately. But he's doing it enough now that, you know, he it, it's like that Oregon State game last year. At the end of the game, you look at his stat line and you just go, wow, that's basically perfect. He could throw to Gabe Marks on Saturday, and it seems like it's been this way the whole season. He could just pretty much put a ball up to Gabriel Marks, and you almost kind of have had a feeling no matter how well he was covered, he was going to come down with that football. Dom Williams had his dropping issues, but right now it looks like, just like he was a couple of years ago before he redshirted, Gabe Marks is the guy a WSU quarterback can go to uh, when he really, really needs a reception. Well, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've said since I arrived in Pullman that Gabe Marks is the best player on the team, and I, I think that's pretty much without question. And mm-hmm. I think, I, I, you know, I got some skepticism when I said before the year that, um, you know, I'm not sure this isn't Marks' last season. I, I'll stand by that, and it's because, you know, it really is true. We, we see it in practice all the time. He will just dominate. If the ball's nearby, he is – his ability to sort of – change uh, change his body, kind of change his direction and attack the football in the air before a defensive back can, can make that same change is just so much better than anyone else's. And one-on-one against their defensive back, it's really not fair. I mean, I think every touchdown he's had this season, if you go back through them, there are all these kind of contortionist uh, catches where he's twisting the upper half of his body to make the catch and he's planting his two feet because they're all happening right next to the sideline mm-hmm. at the end zone. You know, you go back to that one uh, against Rutgers, you go back to both of them in yesterday or in Saturday's game. None of them are easy catches and you know, he, he really does just have this very, very, very unique ability to attack the ball while it's in the air. And he's able to start doing that a second or two earlier than the defensive back is able to react to his initial movement. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really just a, a very unique skill he has. And, uh, yeah, yeah, if I was Luke Falk, I would be throwing it to, to him in the end zone every chance I got. He was a little bit of a quote machine during uh, the weekly press conferences too, wasn't he? Like I liked his crack about Falk uh, being, you know, what, I can't remember what it was, like Mr. Uh, Mr. Bland or something, and then he called him that when he walked in. He's a little bit of a quote machine, isn't he? Yeah, well, Gabe's a very interesting character because he is, a, he is very uh, – you know, he's very intelligent. He's very introspective. He doesn't really, you don't get the sense that he really kind of likes the dance, doesn't like getting trotted out to talk to reporters. He's someone who's a lot better one-on-one than he is in a press conference situation. Initially, now that he's being made to do it, he, he kind of tries to have some fun with it. Mm-hmm. But he, he will challenge you. You know, you have to, I think you also saw in the press conference today, there were a lot of times when reporters were asking questions that he didn't think were great questions. And so he would just kind of uh, give a three-word answer and kind of chuckle to himself at how he kind of you know made a fool of the reporter. He, if, if you can get a dialogue going and he respects the question, you will get some great answers with him. But he, he will challenge the reporter. You know, He'll break the fourth wall. He'll, he'll ask a question right back at the mm-hmm. reporter and kind of question why they asked that. So it, it certainly makes uh, makes you raise your game as a reporter, but the uh, end result, if it goes well, can be some really quick, some really uh, interesting perspective. Well, he and I just need to have a 
talk about that mustache. He needs to grow it in a little thicker. Jacob Thorpe from the Spokesman Review joining us here on the Kook Center Hour. Uh, Jacob, let's talk a little bit about the running backs because, you know, I, I abhor the fact, I hate that the NCAA includes sack yardage and rushing yardage. I think it's the stupidest thing in stat keeping. You take away Luke Falk's sack yards, and between Gerard Wicks, Jamal Morrow, and Keith Harrington, those guys averaged over nine yards a carry yesterday, or on a Saturday, rather. That's what we want to see out of these running backs uh, in this air raid system. And if they can keep getting that from them consistently this year, that offensive line can keep blocking for them like that, it helps open up that passing game for Luke Falk, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, like you said, you, know, you said it perfectly. That really is exactly how the uh, the air raid running game is supposed to work. And, you know, I think uh, people have kind of thought that, myself included, that maybe Keith Harrington and Gerard Wicks were – just going to be the two guys that Gerard's ability to to hit the hole and get seven yards by pushing forward and then uh, Keith Harrington's ability to kind of dance and take those screen passes those were the weapons they're in a role with and then uh, Jamal Morrow kind of reminded everybody why he was the starter last year and why he was the guy that finished number four on the team in receptions last year because he really can do it all and uh, you know when he when he's moving like that then they really just have so many different options different ways to gas you mm-hmm. and Oregon really 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 was daring them to run the football you know they they said this is a one-dimensional offense we're going to try and make it a no-dimensional offense well the the, the Cougars had a response and, and it worked out great for them let's move on to the defense now because I think that played a really big part uh in that win on Saturday obviously against Oregon Kept Oregon, uh, their third down conversion rate, something like one for every three. I think it was like five for 16 was the final one. You're starting to see this defense evolve in terms of their speed coming up and their gap assignments are getting a little bit better. Overall, it seems like the job Alex Grinch has done so far is a pretty good one with this side of the football. Well, I I don't think there's any question about that, especially when you consider that they've already forced uh, more turnovers than they did last Mm -hmm. season. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, uh, they, 
they couldn't get the yards when it mattered. And I think I think a lot of the reason someone, a lot of people wanted uh, them to go for two with, with one second left there, apart from, you know, the arguments that you've, you've got all this momentum, the other team's a little scattered at that point, having just given up a touchdown with one second left. Oregon seemed a little more built for overtime because they had a running back who could just dash you for 10 yards every time and you had to put the ball in the air. Yep. Well, their defense made Oregon put the ball in the air and when they did, they made him pay. Yep. Shalom Luani, I want to talk about him. Not only that pick to end the game, but we haven't seen a guy who can hit like that since Deon Buchanan was on this football team. How important is that to the secondary that, by the way, I should note, and Jacob, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I can't remember a single defensive pass interference or defensive holding call on them so far this year. And if there has been one, it's only been a couple. So for a relatively young unit, that's pretty good. But Luani's presence has to be helping them a lot, just knowing there's a guy back there who can lay the wood at any time. Yeah, I think you're starting to help it more because I think that what we saw against Oregon was you're seeing the you know the receivers are starting to notice that there's a guy back there who can who can make it hurt a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, you know Luani, Luani still got a ways to go. We we saw some pretty some pretty bad missed tackles on Saturday. I mm-hmm. think uh, you know it, it's one thing to send a guy up against Royce Freeman expecting to make the tackle, but you know he he got barreled over by Tosh Griffin, and I, I think he'd like to have that one back, but. He really just is very fast, and I'm sure that's where a lot of that hitting ability comes from is he can get so much speed going into the guy, and he's got such great instincts to really create a really good hitting angle on a guy. Mm-hmm. But what's been most impressive to me is just that he's always around the football, and, and I think that's what's more important is that, you know, for as fun as it was to watch Dayon Buchanan blow up a wide receiver and, you know, maybe knock the ball out, as big as those plays can be, what I think they really missed from Dayon last year was his ability to turn a, uh, a 40-yard gain into a 12-yard gain. It was, you know, the damage-limiting ability is what you really want from a safety. It's what makes Earl Thomas so great. It's the one who can just kind of say, yeah, you got to the safety, but you're not getting any farther. Yeah. That's what they really hadn't didn't have last season, and you started to just see a lot more of those big plays over the top, or you'd see runs where the guy, you know, gets to the linebacker, swings outside of the linebackers, and gone mm-hmm. that's not really happening in the same way with with you know a few exceptions they've gone up against some really good players and that's it's going to happen but i think he's really allowed them to limit explosives and i think that's really where the, you're, you're seeing his uh his benefit on the defense rather than just you know a, a couple of big wallops each game jacob thorpe from the spokesman review joining us here on the kook center hour and uh, jacob i said this last week and, you know, kind of prefaced it with, I wasn't too confident in this, but you win that game against Oregon, you're going to get to 3-2 and two in a really, really weird way that not a, no one, I think, could have predicted before the start of the season. Yeah, if you thought the team was going to be 3-2 and two, at this point, you probably assumed two straight losses to Cal and Oregon. Well, they did half of that, and they lost to Portland State. So, is, is this team, like, they're in a kind of a weird place right now, aren't they, with that really inexplicable loss to start the season and then the really inexplicable win right here like you talked about earlier they need to build on this do you think they're better equipped to do that this year than say last year with that utah win well i mean like you say it is such a weird season that every single game they've played has it has seemingly an enormous caveat beside it you know you, you lose to portland state well portland state just you know had the biggest yeah. ever win by an FCS team over an FBS team. Got a coach fired they're, too. Yeah, they're ranked in the top twenty-five FCS rankings, and you know, if, and if they've been ranked at the start, 
well, that wouldn't, well, that would have been a bad loss. I think the atmosphere after that game is very different if it was number 18 Portland State in the FCS polls, just because you know there is people are starting to gain some respect for those uh, elite FCS programs now. Mm-hmm. Not that they're that, but you know they're they're one tier below that. Uh, then you talk about Rutgers, and you know, okay, they won the, on the road against Rutgers. That's fine, but Rutgers was going through you know absolute football program hell. Yeah. Uh, Oregon, you know, Oregon had some great, great players in yesterday's game, but you know, it's it doesn't it's not your slightly older brothers of Oregon. I, you know, they're not ranked. Uh, they don't have a quarterback who can just destroy you like they've had the last few games, and they had a couple starters out. So, you know, if Oregon finishes the season with five wins, which seems pretty possible. Maybe that game doesn't look as great. You know, every single game seems to have an enormous caveat next to it so yeah. far. And in some ways, this Oregon State game is the first one where it's going to line up and say, "Okay, we know where we know who these guys are. They're uh, number twelve in the Pac-12, maybe number eleven type team. Washington State should beat these guys at home. And if they do, then they're four and two. You know, the season sets up pretty favorably because there's a lot of other teams that are just going through a lot of stuff this year. Oregon, mm-hmm. they're uh, Arizona and Arizona State are just kind of going through some bleep right now. They uh, Stanford looks very, very good, but they still aren't just quite the quite aren't quite as talented as they have been in the past. Uh, UW has this seemingly very, very good defense, but their offense isn't going to put anybody away. So you know, no matter who they're playing, it's going to be tight in the fourth quarter, and all of a sudden, one big play. Jake Browning throws a pick six, and there's your Apple Cup win. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just a weird year, but you know everybody's got to win some game, and, and in weird years there are still teams that win eight or nine games and go to really good bowl games, and then there's no reason at this point why Washington State can't be that team. You, know, you talked about that Oregon State game coming up this week, obviously a little bit, and I was thinking about this, and I talked about this in the opening segment. There are a lot of really weird parallels with this game when you compare it to 2011, a coach in his fourth year who a lot of fans kind of expected a little more out of the team in that year. Oregon State's down, and you're coming into that game, a game you really, really should win against a not very good Oregon State team. And like you talked about, this is kind of that statement. They need to follow up a pretty complete game against Oregon, which got them that win with a pretty resounding win in this game to kind of kind of cool everyone down in terms of the really the anger or the distaste for Mike Leach right now, don't they? Well, I don't know if it's so much about cooling down the anger of the fans. Although sure. that being said, if they if they were to lose, I think they would certainly stoke a lot of that anger. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's a win that these guys need to kind of teach themselves how to build, how to stack wins. You know, they haven't beaten. Uh, FBS teams back to back since the those November 2013 games against Utah and Arizona. They uh, it's just not a team that's really kind of shown much of an ability to progress linearly, uh, with the exception of I would say Cal and Oregon. You know they, mm-hmm. they got better one week than the next, and they they finally did that. But uh, you know it's certainly any any Pac-12 team at this point can nip up and bite you. And there's certainly reasons to think Oregon State can do that if they don't come in ready to play and, you know, kind of throw this playing poorly at home monkey off their back. I mean, you know, Oregon State has a coach who coached in the Big Ten championship game last year, and he didn't get fired. He 
you know, came there because he wanted to be there. So it's certainly conceivable that Gary Anderson is a really, really excellent coach, will devise a really good game plan and, you know, surprise some teams, that he'll be able to, you know, outcoach some people and put his team in a game they otherwise shouldn't be. Uh, somewhat along those lines, you know, Arizona kind of screwed up all of our uh, preview stuff by just blowing the hell out of the Beavers 44 to 7 or something like that on Saturday. Yeah. But before that, they were ranked in the top 25 or top 50 in most defensive categories. You know, they, they do have some, some players back there. They're very aggressive. Uh, and they'll come up and hit you. And, you know, I mean, Seth Collins isn't a good quarterback yet. He's an athlete, and he can do some stuff. He's, I think, the number nine rusher in the Pac-12 right now. You, don't, yeah. you know, you're not a top ten. That means he's beating out at least three starting running backs in terms of a rushing yard. So he's got some moves. He's got some stuff he can do. And, you know, they, they, they've got some players. So if, if Washington State doesn't play well, you know, that Oregon State can certainly make him pay. Just give me a really quick prediction, just uh, probable final score. What do you think about this weekend? Like I said, you know, this is probably a game WSU should win. And you talked about Seth Collins, and WSU did have problems with the read option and a quick quarterback against Portland State and a few problems with that against Oregon. But what do you think about this weekend uh, with the Cougs and Beavs? Well, I, I think it sets up really nicely for the Cougars. Uh, you know, the, the defense – really just does seem to be getting better every week playing better mm-hmm. uh they're they're finding their athletes and the the young guys that they the team is full of are starting to play better um luke falk certainly seems to be back in the rhythm that uh they needed from him in order to have success on offense and, and you know the, the running game is clicking i i let's just put it this way i think the team takes a step forward once again and i think that's certainly enough to beat a bad oregon state team uh 38 17 Jacob Thorpe from the Spokesman Review joining us. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Brian Anderson coming up next here on the Cook Center Hour. Stick around. Back here on the Kook Center Hour, and uh, I have, I, I'm having a very good week because not only did I get to just talk to Jacob Thorpe, now I get to talk to a friend of the program, friend of Michael, uh, and all-around neato dude, Mr. Brian Anderson from our very own Kook Center. Uh, you were in Eugene on Saturday, were you not, you lucky SOB? No, no, no. I was oh. in Eugene. My dad turned 60 over the weekend, so me and him went up to our uh, cabin on a lake, and uh, we're lucky enough to have satellite out there in the Pac-12 network, so we didn't miss anything. So you, so you have, so you got to be in a very wonderful place with family while that happened, and I assume, knowing you, there was good bourbon involved. Yeah, there was. There was, I think. Uh, let's see, five different types of bourbon there, and uh, yeah, me and Dad got after it after that one. That was. 
That was pretty crazy. No cell phone service or internet or anything like that. So it's just kind of isolated and freaking out the entire time. So it was awesome. Well, I hope those bears recover soon from the men screaming at them at some point. Um, <laughs> so let's let's talk first about just the kind of overall performance. And I know that you know we've we've all kind of gone over it a little bit, but uh, you're our resident. Uh, like football guy, so your just overall impressions of uh, how the offense looked and uh, how the defense looked. Because for me, at least on offense, when you you know we'll talk about the running backs later, but that was kind of really the first ever true. This is how the running game should look uh, in an air raid offense type game. Yeah, definitely. That that was actually like um, Luke Falk was outstanding, and so that's I, I mean just. If you look at a player of the game, player of the week, player of the conference sort of a thing, um, that's all Luke. That, that game was incredible for him. But uh, if you look at just kind of take a step back and see where the offense is at a little bit, it was really, really encouraging to see what the running backs were doing. Um, and really, like, that's kind of what you should sort of expect every game. I mean, I think they were around 10 yards for a rush attempt or something crazy like that, Yeah, which is probably not sustainable. But, um, <laughs> you know, you with, uh, with the run box list that Oregon's given them, and other teams will probably give it to them a lot more uh, as the season goes on, uh, you should just – there should be five, six – seven, eight sort of runs where they break off 15, 20 yards, you know, and and WSU has some running backs now that are totally capable of doing that with uh, Gerard Wicks and Jamal Morrow and Keith Harrington, especially Keith Harrington. That kid, yeah. is, that kid is a lightning bug, man. He's really, really fun to watch. Well, I said, you know, I said that we rewatched the game and I, the, the run he fumbled on, I, you know, I understand the result wasn't great, but I don't. I couldn't find. I couldn't really see who the offensive lineman was that sealed the one backer that filled that space. But when he hit that hole, uh, that dude was gone. I don't think we've seen speed yeah. like that out of a running back in a long time. No, that's something that they're doing a lot better this year. I think Legion sort of ended on it in one of his uh, one of his pressers. I, I can't really remember which one, but he talked about running sideline to sideline and versus running you know, upfield, and that's kind of something everybody knows. You get upfield, get north and south, run hard. Mm-hmm. And these these backs are really doing a fantastic job of that uh, this year for the most part. And, you know, when you got a, a quick first cut like, like Keith Harrington does, you know, he has an opportunity to, to uh, do something special on every play. And let's talk a little bit about Luke Falk now because I know that's been a – you know, a topic of discussion on the site for a number of weeks now. He had a phenomenal game. I mean, 505 yards, six total touchdowns, didn't turn the ball over once. Uh, I believe he was 50 for 74 on his passes, so he's completing uh, basically two-thirds of his passes there. Um, just the the positives from that performance that we can glean are just incredible. I mean, the, the guy basically looked like he did against Oregon State last year, uh, except better. <laughs> yeah, there's, I, I mean, there's so many positives to take away from what Luke Fox doing as a redshirt sophomore. Um, you know, in the beginning of the season, it, it was kind of, you know, the first three games or so, you're kind of going, well, there's good things, there's bad things, and um, maybe it's not going to be as explosive as the offense was last year in 2014, but 
you know, maybe there's going to be a little bit more consistency because, you know, Falk is hitting at uh, just about 72% completion rate and two interceptions and 275 pass attempts is insane. I mean, that's just, he's doing a ridiculously good job of uh, limiting risk and taking what the defense gives him. And sometimes that kind of leads to playing underneath a little bit too much. But when you see him open it up like he did against Oregon, I mean, he, he attacked downfield. He attacked short. He, he really just picked that defense apart. And, mm-hmm. um, when you see it operate at that level, you know, and then mix in the runs and stuff, you can, you can be really, really inspired by uh, what this offense can do going forward. Now, he did, uh, one complaint I think a lot of folks have had is that he's holding on to the ball an awful lot, and it's not even a matter of, you know, he's just holding on to it, holding on to it, and there's nobody open. He's had running backs in the flat at times be open, yeah. and he's still holding on to the ball. What is that, is that just, he doesn't, he, you know, doesn't, I, I, I appreciate the low risk that he doesn't want to throw an interception. Believe me, I do, because I, I dislike turning the ball over. I think everybody does, but... Is that just is that a symptom of that that he's being low risk and he doesn't want to turn the ball over or is it something else where he's waiting a little bit too long for an open receiver? What do you think it is? Well, uh, you know, there's there's a couple of things in that. I, I mean, first of all, holding on to the ball too long isn't uh, that, that that isn't low risk. I mean, he has four fumbles now on strip sacks. Mm-hmm. Two, you know. So I, I mean. That in itself is risky. Taking a sack is risky. You got huge defensive linemen coming at you that are really athletic, and they're going to tee off. So, I mean, in terms of a turnover, there's a strip sack potential. And in terms of making it 12 games in the entire season, uh, you know, you're not going to do that if you're going to if you're going to take seven sacks a game. Like mm-hmm. that's just that's a lot to get hit, you know, in this conference. So. I'm a little bit hesitant to just go ahead and say taking too long means lower risk. I mean, that gives the defensive secondary a lot of time to converge on routes that they're right. seeing, especially if they're, a, if they're in a soft zone. <clears throat> so things you know, may or may not be open, kind of depending on what's going on. But mm-hmm. just taking longer itself doesn't limit the risk of, of making a pass attempt and as far as like going to the running backs and everything, uh, Jacob Thorpe kind of noticed this, uh, same as I did against Cal, um, and a lot of people really. There were quite a few comments um, that noticed it too. But uh, you know, Leach has kind of said, "Oh, look at his completion percentage. He's definitely not missing running backs." And well, you know, that's certainly true. He's completing at a really, really high rate. Um, it's generally always preferable to throw it to the running back, even if the running back's going to get hit and drop for a loss or at the line of scrimmage or, you know, maybe you throw it over his head and it goes out of bounds. Um, letting that guy get hit is better than you getting hit, you know, yeah. as a quarterback. So it's always just, I mean, those those routes exist as check downs so that you don't take sacks, you know, mm-hmm. use them. So people, that's, the way that the camera zooms in on a game, you know, you're zoomed in on the line of scrimmage, so you can see those swing routes and the flats and everything. And um, they look wide open in the first three seconds because the defense really, honestly, hasn't had time to adjust to it. So by the time he's getting to his check down, you know, like the fourth second or in between four and five seconds, you know, those, those flats, you know, they're converging on the flats and they're closing it down. So it's not as wide open as it looks on TV all the time. Yeah. But, Still, they're there. You know, you 
you should probably throw it out to them and let them get hit rather than taking those shots. Yeah. And let's be clear, this is this is not a, you know, we're not displeased with Luke Falk. I am in love with how he has been playing this season. He's been playing great. It's, there are things we'd like to see fixed, but as of right now, if that's still a problem at the end of the season and he's still only thrown four or five interceptions, I'm probably a relatively happy camper. Brian Anderson joining us, our very own from uh, Kook Center, to talk about the football team. Let's move to the defensive side of the ball, Brian. Uh, Boy, we said, but we all said before the season started, this defense needs to get better for them to be competitive, and I think they've held up their end of the bargain so far this year, haven't they? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think they're twenty-eight points per game, and going back to the beginning of the season, we were uh, just kind of the best you can do is throw, you know, throw random darts at a random dartboard and kind of hypothesize what would be good. And I think seventieth in the country. And 30 points per game was kind of, you know, where that bar existed mm-hmm. last year. You know, for teams to be able to do that and make a bowl game with, you know, good offenses. And this defense is, you know, one, improving every single week. Like the, the team that played for the majority against Callum and the majority against Oregon is so incredibly different than the team that came out against uh, PSU Rutgers and Wyoming. Yeah. Um, I mean, their their improvement week to week has just been phenomenal. And if you know, you you don't expect them to just keep ascending in that linear motion all the way through the season. But you know, if they just keep every week getting better and better and better, mm-hmm. um, you know, they they have a really really great shot at at you know limiting teams to under thirty points a game. And if you can do that, this offense should win it for you. I talked about this a little bit with uh, Jacob, but Shalom Luwani uh, gives you a presence back there that they haven't had since Dayon Buchanan left a couple of years ago. And admittedly, you know, it hasn't been long since Dayon graduated, but uh, how important is it to have a guy back there at safety who receivers not only know is is looking for them and looking to hit them hard? But just for the defense, just for the secondary as well, because I know they haven't played pass-heavy teams yet, and well, except for one in Cal, but they seem to be playing a lot better this year defending the pass, or at least it's how it looks to me so far, and I think it's probably got something to do with the fact that there's a guy back there who can hit people pretty violently, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, Shalom, Shalom's a pretty incredible player. Um, I mean, just because the... Uh, the pop that he delivers doesn't necessarily match up what you would think when you see him. Yeah. You know, he, he doesn't look imposing like uh, Dayon Buchanan looked. Dayon looked like a you know a linebacker running around out there at safety. He <laughs> looks scary. Shalom just, he just lays hat and doesn't necessarily look like he's going to be able to do that every time. Um, having a big hitter like that in the secondary is, is uh, pretty important in actually the run defense more than the pass defense for WSU. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly you're going to get, um, you're going to be able to, to instill a little bit of alligator arms in a wide receiver if he thinks that he hears footsteps, you know, coming across the middle. That'll certainly happen. But you know, more importantly, with the with the base nickel defense that Grinch is running, um, and if you go back and watch the Oregon game. The safeties are heavily involved in run support, and Shalom actually was delivering hits at the line of scrimmage a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, 
you know, some of it was just uh, he's a he's a JUCO transfer, so he hasn't really played at this this level before. So he'd come up and pop Royce Freeman, who I mean, that's one of the biggest, strongest, fastest backs in college football. He kind of bounced off of it a couple times. Yeah. But but on the flip side, a couple of other times he just absolutely shell shocked dudes. So um, you know, have, having that coming down from the secondary is, is definitely a huge mm-hmm. advantage. I want to make sure we give, I know we're all kind of hard on Taylor Taliulu at times, but that really key third and two Oregon had near the end of the game there that allowed WSU to get the ball back, he was the one who hit Royce Freeman first and had his arms wrapped around his legs. So I want to, I want to make sure he gets uh, some credit for that because he did make a really important, really good tackle uh, on that play. Talking to Brian Anderson uh, from Coog Center. Uh, and it's just so nice to have a very smart guy like this. Well, we're all very smart and handsome, but uh, a very, very, very smart guy like Brian Anderson here. Uh, You're this... making me blush. <laughs> well, it's it's my job. Um, <laughs> this, I think, overall, I I said this earlier. This three and two is weird, isn't it? Because you didn't really think. If I had told you before the season started that this team was going to be three and two through five games, you would have expected a loss to Cal and to Oregon. You wouldn't have expected a loss to Portland State and to Cal, and you wouldn't have expected um, a squeaker at Rutgers and a not a dominating win at Oregon, but certainly an unlikely or what seemed like an unlikely win at Oregon. This three and two kind of feels a little odd, doesn't it? Like just it's kind of like you don't really know what to make of that record with those wins and losses. Yeah, I, it's definitely weird. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, as, as far as far as like projections and kind of thinking about how the season will go and everything, um, when you're doing that sort of stuff, you kind of have to rely on consistent week-in and week-out performance on, you know, not only WSU, but their opponents. And, you know, in college football, that never happens. <laughs> yeah. So, Projections are kind of a funny thing. Uh, you know, it, eventually over the course of 12 games, it'll usually settle out to where it should. But, uh, you know, I, I think looking at the five games this year, you can um, you can say that this team plays to the level of the opponent. And, you know, I said that that was probably, you know, a little bit of a concern before the Wyoming game. And then the performance at against Wyoming and at Cal and at Oregon kind of justified that a little bit, um, you know. So now the question is, and players are kind of taking, uh, kind of answering a little bit about it in their press conferences. But you know, have they turned the corner and gotten past that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe they have. Uh, it's certainly something that can happen. Um, but with with young teams, that's just kind of how it is sometimes. That's just what they do. Yeah. And you know, and and if they were able to go ahead and make that turn in the middle of the season, then that's you know that that speaks volumes towards the uh, leadership that they have on the team, both in the players and in the coaching staff and everything. And uh, you know, it, it you're still not going to be able to project, you know consistent performance week in and week out for the Mm -hmm. rest of the season. But if you can, you know, say, play at that level that you played against Oregon the rest of the time, you know, there's a lot of teams on the schedule that are going to be in a whole hell of a lot of trouble if WSU does that. Let's talk about this weekend a little bit, too. You got Oregon State coming to town, and uh, 
you know, again, a not a not very good Oregon State team. So if the pattern continues, we don't expect WSU to play up. But it would be nice to see them, like you said, turn the corner and just kind of dominate an opponent, and especially one in Oregon State where they've seen the run game a lot. And Seth Collins is a good running quarterback, but the dude can hardly throw the football. So they should be able to key in on the run of the Beavs pretty well and be concerned about that and not too worried about him throwing the football at all. Yeah, I uh, I was kind of expecting a lot more zone read and running quarterbacks going into that Oregon game. I thought that that was kind of a weakness that WSU showed on film against Portland State. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was kind of a strength for uh, Taylor Alley and Royce Freeman um, to be able to run against them. And they just, they just really didn't do it at all. Um, I think outside of Allie's, uh eight-yard touchdown run and Lockheed's 35-yard scramble where he you know, broke a bunch of tackles and just kind of ran around and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Duck quarterbacks only had 17 yards on eight attempts. You know, and that was just because Royce Freeman was dominating so much. But still, like that, that was just something that they didn't really test them with. Um, they'll definitely be tested with a mobile quarterback in Seth Collins. Uh, he's a ninth-leading rusher in the conference, and he's averaging um, – let me see if I can see this here. He's averaging 70, 72.5 yards per game. Yeah. And uh, and actually has more carries uh, per game than his running back does. Um yeah, about two more two more carries per game than his running back. Yeah. Does. So, so all the questions about you know WSU and defending the Veer with a mobile quarterback kind of still linger. Um, I don't really think they put any of that to rest against Oregon. Um, so th- that's that's a huge concern. So they get, they got a they got a real opportunity to show that uh, you know just how much the defense has progressed. Give me your prediction for this weekend. I know Oregon State's defense is decent, pretty good, uh, but their offense, you know, outside of what we talked about, they're really only a threat to run the football. They don't throw the football much, and Collins can only complete about half of his throws. In fact, I think it was about 50.7% of his throws are completed. So give me a prediction for what happens this weekend. I think... Like I said earlier, WSU really needs to turn the corner, and hopefully they can do that and really beat an opponent... Uh, that they should really handily kind of put away by at least a couple of touchdowns. Yeah, I think the spread was it, it opened at minus eight. I haven't seen where it's moved since that. Minus you know, seven WSU, and a half, I think. Yeah, WSU being favored, but uh, yeah, I, a lot of people you know aren't really high on Oregon State. Don't expect a whole lot out of them with this being you know year one of their coaching change. Um, some people are even just saying they're flat out bad. Uh, I have a really, really tough time saying that a Gary Anderson coach team is bad. Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's a phenomenal coach. He will have them very well prepared week in and week out. And um, you know, Oregon State, they're going to be tough. They're going to be a really, really tough team. And you know, it's just uh, kind of funny that players were having to field questions about this being a trap game, you know, when really there's not a huge separation between uh, Washington State and Oregon State right mm-hmm. now. Um, I think I think the defense kind of shows up uh, and really puts together a solid effort, keeping them underneath, uh, I'd say, about 21, you know. Mm-hmm. If, they can, if they can keep them under three scores, I think that'll be pretty good. And then 
I, I just look for the offense to carry momentum and start rolling up, you know, 35, 38, 42, 45 sort of scores, um, you know, where they're, they're scoring on one or two drives, scoring touchdowns on one or two drives a quarter. Yeah. You know, I think that, I think that that's kind of where they need to get to. And, um, you know, that's, that's pretty much what they did against Oregon. They got really close to that. So, Final score is something like 45 to 17, something like that. And, you know, it, it'll just be, I think the only reason it gets that out of hand, because normally you're going to look at this team and say, well, they've played, close, they've played everybody close. So they're probably going to play Oregon State close just because that's how the season's gone. Mm-hmm. But uh, I see it. I see it. I see a enormous, raucous, loud, fired up, Martin Stadium and these players who have had a really, really long time to think about the duds that they played at home earlier in the season, you know, just come out and play with some yep. intensity that we haven't seen at home before. Brian Anderson of Kook Center joins us. Thanks, big guy. All right, thank you. All right, we're going to do Dunderhead of the Week coming up next here on the Kook Center Hour and Ask Michael Anything. Dunderhead of the Week time, and this one, uh, this actually goes back a couple of weeks. I didn't bring it up on uh, our Dunderhead of the Week a couple weeks ago, and I'm not really sure why I didn't. But uh, during the Seahawks-Lions game, when Camp Chancellor punched the ball out and K.J. Wright booped the ball out of the end zone, which of course we found out was against the rules, but results in a touchback for the defense, which for the record I think is still one of the stupidest rules at any level of football. I think you should at least put the ball back on the 15 for the offense, something like that. You shouldn't just give it to the defense. In all the jubilation, all the excitement, all the everything, there were two guys sitting in front of me at the bar we usually go to with the safety sign above their head. They wanted a safety called. And I went, what are you doing, guy? There's no way that can be called a safety. Well, yeah, you, that can be called a safety. It absolutely can. Trust me, I've been following football for a long time. That can be called a safety. Defensive players recovering the ball in the end zone they are defending cannot get a safety. I kept telling tell them this. You can only get a safety if you recover the ball or down... or You can only get a safety if you down a ball carrier... In the end zone, they are driving away from. In other words, the one you're trying to keep them closer to. You cannot get a safety in the end zone you're defending. And they were adamant. Yeah, bro, I can get one. You don't know what you're talking about. Do I not know what I'm talking about? Like, please, if I am wrong about this, someone correct me if I am wrong. But it was has been my impression 
that you cannot get a safety if you are the defense in the end zone you are defending. The only thing you can do is get a touchback if you recover the ball in the end zone or in KJ Wright's case, you bop it out the back of it. You you cannot get a safety in there. And these guys were adamant that you could get a safety and that that should have been two points. Or that there was something he could have done to make it two points. There is not anything you could do to make that two points. And please, someone correct me if I am wrong. And if I am wrong, I will hold my head in shame. But you cannot get a safety in the end in that situation, the situation the Seahawks were in against the Lions, or any defense for that matter. If you recover a fumble in the end zone that the offense is driving to, the one you are defending, you cannot get a safety. Period. End of sentence. The only thing that can happen is a touchback. That is it. That is all. Why would you reward a defense with points for allowing a ball to get into the end zone they're defending? End of the day, the dude was wearing a leather jacket. It had like some raw metal band or, you know, like raw metal band on the back. But I didn't, I didn't really take issue for much longer. Dunderhead of the week. Whatever your name is. I think he's a friend of the bar owner too. So we probably won't be going there much longer. Ask Michael anything time now. As usual, good batch of questions here for Ask Michael. Anything from at Brett underscore Gleason, Brett Gleason. You get to make one change to the English dictionary. What's that change and why? You could go with, like, the obvious. Like, haven't they added a bunch of really stupid crap from the last few years? Like, isn't YOLO in there now or something? Really stupid thing. You could go with the obvious thing like that. But I, I, want, I want to go a different direction. I want to add Clemsoning. To the dictionary. I want not that they print the dictionary anymore. I don't think actually. I don't think uh, Oxford is printing a dictionary anymore. Um, I would add Clemsoning because it's the East Coast word for Kuganit, right? That's that or Kugdit or whatever. And I don't. I don't like. If you're gonna use that phrase, use it the right way. Like I saw somebody use that on Twitter uh, in on a on Saturday when the Cougs were down ten in the fourth quarter. Like that's that's. That if you're going to use it, use it the right way. So I would add Clemsoning just to just to cement that as the word for coughing up a game like that. That's that's why I would do that. From at the Martin Party, defend Pullman. What's your go-to Halloween candy? I'm a big Three Musketeers guy, and I know a lot of people aren't. And I totally get that because it can be kind of bland. I like payday bars too. But if you got to get like the really small ones, and there's like the... The small candies. Uh, guys in my neighborhood used to hand out dots. I love dots. Those are really delicious. Uh, and Sour Patch Kids. They used to hand those out all the time. There was another place, uh, the neighborhood we always tried to go to. They used to hand out king size candy bars to everybody. We went like one year and my dad didn't let me after that. From at K Lockins, Keith Lockins, why is AM radio still a thing? I live within 20 miles from Seattle as a crow flies and can barely get 710, 950, or 1000 in my car. That's a little weird. I think that should be your car as a radio guy. That signal's strong enough from wherever. If you live less than 20 miles from Seattle, you should be able to pick it all up. But it's basically still a thing for the first two stations you mentioned. And actually for 1000, they do all news. But AM's still a big thing for sports talk radio. 
because it's really the only viable medium other than all news that still is good on AM because the signal quality is not as good and now current radio listeners want that cleaner signal that you get by listening to a thing like a podcast like you're doing now and FM provides that better signal AM can't do that and it's just a little bit tougher to manage as well so um, that that's why AM radio is just not a thing but it's really just still a thing for sports radio because that's the viable thing on it now a little radio nerd talk near the end Washington State 38, Oregon State 21. I got a good feeling about this. Got to turn the corner on this one, guys. We'll see you next week, hopefully after two wins in a row, here on the Kook Center Hour.